when you're creative, you are investing in your in yourself in the sense that when you create something, you kind of prove to yourself in the world that you are more than the than this person just standing here. You can actually create and add to the world. You, you, the act of creation is is literally to to put more in the world than than was there before, uh, and that reminds you that you are that you are worth something. You know. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of Breaking Out. I'm your host, Jared Lazar. Ever wondered what it takes to step outside of a traditional job or career and chase your dreams? Well, this is the podcast for you. Each week, I interview inspiring guests who've done something unconventional and have created an interesting, novel, or unusual career for themselves. So I love books and I love reading. And this hasn't always been the case. For a long time, when I was at law school and even as a junior lawyer, I spent so much of my time reading these thick, voluminous textbooks and cases and contracts. And to be honest, it left very little time and energy for me to enjoy reading for pleasure. I'm so glad to say that that love of reading has been rekindled and I've actually set myself the goal of reading at least five life-changing books this year. So... If you're like me, there's nothing quite like the feel and smell of holding a new book in your hands as you open that first page and dive in. Reading and I think access to literature is just so crucial to your learning and development and it wouldn't be a stretch to say that you could draw a direct relationship between someone's level of education and their access to books. The reality is that this is a privilege that many people, especially in South Africa, don't have access to books and textbooks is it's actually out of reach for many because of a few things the relatively high cost of hard copy print books and limitations in distributing print books to remote areas on this episode i speak to arthur atwell who's on a mission to change the book publishing industry arthur is the co-founder and managing director of electric bookworks which is a Town based book publishing innovation company that is helping bring book publishing into the digital age Arthur is also a, Sh- a Shuttleworth Foundation Fellow and Serial Business Starter. Apart from Electric Bookworks, Arthur is also the co-founder of BookDash, an organization that's devoted to improving youth literacy, BetterCare, an open access healthcare publisher, and PaperRight, an award-winning experiment in distributed print on demand. Arthur is also the host of his own podcast called How Books Are Made, where he speaks to bookmaking leaders about the art and science of making books. Arthur, I'm so, so glad to want to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Jared. I'm thrilled to be here. I really appreciate the invite. Awesome. So we'll spend quite a bit of time, I think, on all of the cool things that you're doing and, and have done uh, on, of course, all of your projects, but specifically with things like Electric Bookworks and BookDash and, and your other projects. But if we can just begin with how it is that you actually became involved in book publishing? Why, why mm. publishing? Why become a, a book publisher? Well, yeah, I was one of those lucky people who grew up with so many books in the house that they, they're just like air. They were just everywhere. My parents are keen right. readers and we had floor to ceiling bookshelves. And yeah, what a, what a privilege, even though I was quite late to really get into reading myself as a kid. 
I always knew that there was this vast universe surrounding me of stories and complex ideas. So I kind of grew up in that environment. And then my mom was a book publisher. And by high school, I was already okay. helping her out with, with bookmaking tasks at her company, uh, the company she worked at doing picture research and copyright permissions and so on. And I just kind of fell into it. I studied a, a BA at UCT and was really kind of deep into that when I realized that I had to somehow start paying my way. And book publishing just <laughs> seemed so natural. I'd grown up surrounded by books in my mom's work. And uh, so there we go. That was that. Was that. that was the beginning. I started as a, a copy editor at Oxford University Press here in Cape Town. And, Right. The late, late 90s. So it's been a while. So, I mean, okay, that, that I guess makes sense that there's a, a little bit of a history of um, book publishing in, in, and access and, you know, kind of closeness and proximity to, to books and all of that. But a big part of your journey is, I think, you spending a lot of time and energy on building businesses and, and projects. And I think I'd like to understand you know, where does that drive come from? It's one thing to say, I want to become a book publisher. Uh, or, or um, you know, an editor or something like that. It's another thing to say I'm going to build a book publishing business that is going to you know try and change an industry. <laughs> Wait, has it yeah. always been a part of you? You know that that kind of entrepreneurial drive. I think that I just love uh, solving problems. Uh, I see a problem, I want to solve it. That's not always a strength. I can be really annoying sometimes. Always trying to fix everything. Uh, but uh, but books are essentially. Uh, problems to solve, right? You've got this incredibly right. complex little package. I like to say that in a book of 60,000 words, that's at least 60,000 things that can go wrong. So it's just a wonderful thing to explore. And I think that there's not a big jump at all between being a book publisher and being an entrepreneur right. uh, because every book is, is like a tiny startup. You know, the author is the founder, the, uh, the publisher is the venture capital kind of investor uh, and you have to figure out what this product that you're gonna that you're gonna sell to the world and every time you publish a new book you're essentially starting a new business and I think right. that it wasn't a big leap then uh, for me it certainly didn't feel unnatural to go from publishing books to building businesses although to be honest I started uh, while well, I'd always had my own little businesses on the side since I was a kid, uh, making t-shirts or little clay sculptures and selling them, all kinds of little things. The real uh, turning point for me was that I was in book publishing, which is a very small industry in the early 2000s. Nice. And I really wanted to get into uh, what we call trade publishing, uh, which is a, a publishing term for the kind of books you find in exclusive books, you know, uh, general interest nice. books. And it's such a small industry, I just couldn't get in. Uh, I had been in book in school book publishing and I couldn't find a way in. There were just no, no positions. And so I kind of started mm -hmm. a business because there was nothing else to do, to be honest. And I think that I, I like to emphasize that because entrepreneurs sometimes get a lot of credit for being these kind of brave pioneers, when in actual fact, right. <laughs> many of us, maybe most of us just kind of fall into it by accident. We're not trying to set out to be great at Jean-Luc Picard's, you know, we're, we're, we're just trying to make a living. <laughs> and that's how it happened to me. I, I like that. I mean, it, it almost kind of, it, it seems like it makes it less 
daunting in a way to think of it like that. You know, you're not doing the thing because you want to go and change the world. It's it's, it's almost kind of um, it's something that you feel you feel compelled to do. So mm. I, I like that. I really like that. You've had obviously quite a interesting journey. Uh, one that I think <laughs> has has led you to to many places, which which we'll unpack. One of the key themes I think that I'd like to focus on w- with this episode is starting over and dealing with with setbacks and, and kind of rising above. Mm-hmm. So, if I understand correctly, by late 2009, uh, you'd already co-founded Electric Bookworks. It was about three years earlier. And so then in 2009, you co-found Paperdite, which was a, a publishing startup, as I said, and that kind of becomes your, your main focus. So... Again, before I do it in injustice, why don't I just let you explain what Paperite was about and and what the idea was behind it? Because I think it was, you know, going to be quite a quite a, a world changing or an industry changing um, thing. Yeah, I really thought it was. You know, I I kind of knew in my bones that this was the obvious next step for book distribution. So I'll describe what we were trying to build. Um, in book publishing, every book publisher knows that their books get photocopied. And that means that photocopy shops all around the world are already essentially distributing books. Uh, but we also know that most of that's illegal, right? And so copy shops, cop- photocopy shops get this really bad reputation for being kind of against the publishing industry. And I don't know, I was a student too. I photocopied my fair share of books. Um, and, and the fact is that they're, they're meeting a need, right? They're meeting a need that the publishing industry can't meet, whether it's a need driven by availability of books or the price of books or any number of other things. The fact is that they are a really important piece of the chain. And so what I thought we could really do is why don't we work with photocopy shops and make them a part of our distribution chain as the publishing industry? What if we mm. made it easy and legal for them to print books out for their customers and their customers can pay us all for the convenience, right? And so we wanted to turn every photocopy shop into a print-on-demand bookshop. And the real magic of the, the system was the way the money moved because we could reduce the price of a university textbook by 40%, which when you're talking about textbooks that are 800 Rand, you know, bringing it down to roughly 500 Rand yeah, is a huge saving. And the publisher yeah. would still make the same amount of money at the end of the day because by distributing books through print-on-demand bookshops, we were cutting out a whole lot of intermediaries in the book supply chain that mm. were suddenly not necessary. And that was just super exciting to me because I didn't want to take anything away from the beauty of an officially published, beautifully printed book. And anyone who can still afford that should buy that. That's a beautiful thing. And there was no way we were going to compete with that sector of the market. We weren't going to create a whole new sector of people who would normally be photocopying or just going without, but who now could access the book this way, maybe not as beautiful a book as they would get in a bookstore but just as effective for their purposes. And they didn't even have to print the whole thing out. You know, at university, so many of us bought these big textbooks and then only read like a third of them. So why don't you just print out that one third and save some money? So there were all kinds of reasons it was was a no-brainer. We managed to get uh, hundreds of photocopy shops signed up. I think at at our peak, we had about 400 active copy shops around South Africa uh, and dozens of publishers 
allowing us to distribute their books in this way. Uh, there's a lot of detail right. to it that we don't have time to go into now, but it was a really elegant solution. Um, so by the peak of it, I think we had over 2,000 books in our catalog, uh, including fiction and school study guides um, and professional reference books. But the one kind of book that we couldn't get, which was the one kind of book that would have made all the difference to us and to our users, our customers, were university textbooks, higher ed textbooks. Because those are the books that are the most expensive and mm. where that are the most photocopied and where we could make the most difference. But despite five years of, of trying, we couldn't get higher ed publishers. And this is my personal analysis, right? No one's going to say this outright, but we couldn't get those higher ed publishers to overcome the, I would say, emotional uh, anxiety or trepidation around working alongside photocopy shops as opposed to against them. Uh, in the end, every negotiation we had with a higher ed publisher about putting their books on our system ended when it got to the nitty gritty of the legal department and the rights deal and this anxiety around what would photocopy shops do once they had those PDFs. Yeah. It was kind of ridiculous. It didn't follow any kind of logic because, of course, these photocopy shops already have scans or PDFs or, mm. or, of these, these books, right? Um, as long as the physical book is in the world, the copy shop can copy it. We wanted to add a legal uh, channel to that, plus an enormous amount of interesting data around sales. I mean, can you imagine what you could learn as a publisher right. if all of a sudden you go from having, you know, 30 or 40 bookstores that you're selling at around the country to suddenly you've got four or 500 bookstores selling your books across the country? Completely. Total different, different situation. Anyway, we, we tried really hard for about five years. We had wonderful support and funding from the Shuttleworth Foundation, a really great team. We did definitely make some strategic mistakes in addition to what I've mentioned about publishers. So I'll, I'll own those. And uh, in the end, after five years, it just wasn't working. We didn't have those magic hybrid textbooks. We had probably gone too broad, too fast, rather than uh, deep mm -hmm. and local enough. And, uh, and we had to shut it down. And that was, that was a really hard moment um, for me personally yeah. and, and for everyone who had kind of believed in us. Yeah, C completely. And, and I do want to get into that. I mean, I think you were kind of really disrupting an industry. I mean, you've mentioned already that that idea would have cut so many people out of that that uh, chain, you know, printers and, and some of the distributors and so on. And I mean, I, I can almost imagine the, the pushback you must have gotten. Um, yeah. You know, trying, trying to bring that into the industry. Yeah, it was, it was a strange experience uh, because the pushback was never explicit. We... We clearly had very compelling social impact goals, and no one is going to say, either publicly or privately, that, right. that they won't support those goals. What essentially happened, the pushback took an interesting form in that it, it, it took the form of complete inertia. <laughs> so an inability <laughs> to actually action anything. And, um, yeah. and so we were just mired in this inability to get anyone to... to take an action mm -hmm. to make it, make a decision and make something happen. And, and I don't say everybody, I, they were just those very particular books we really needed. Um, you know, yeah. that, that really meant that was, that was eventually the reason I knew we had to 
quit. You know, I, we could have kept bashing on and improving our strategy and improving our implementation and improving our support to copy shops and improving our marketing. But if we couldn't get those critical books, then I was really just wasting the shuttle with foundation's money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, so, you know, during the life of, of Paperite, um, the, the business won a number of international awards. As you say, you had funding from the Shuttleworth Foundation. I think you personally, you were on TV, you'd given <laughs> TEDx talks. And then the business closes and, and it doesn't work. And and for the reasons, obviously, that, that you've just discussed. I mean, ultimately, I think at least for me, the story has an happy ending, mm-hmm. has a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you mind just talking me through what that experience was like mm-hmm. as the founder of a business that you've invested all this time and energy and probably money as well to kind of see it close mm-hmm. and, and have to pick yourself up after that. I mean, just kind of putting myself in your shoes almost, I imagine I would have been quite frustrated and possibly like disillusioned with the entire publishing industry after that experience. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't lie. It's, uh, it, it was a, a tough and, and dark time. I, I think it's one of those life experiences that you can't fully understand until you've gone through it in a way because it's profoundly personal. Uh, I'm sure whether you're a you know, co-founder or a solo founder, as I was in that case, you just carry this enormous weight. Um, you've had to uh, let staff go. So those are livelihoods and careers that you've um, cut short or certainly, you know, put a roadblock in. Um, and especially for me, given the acclaim we had had, uh, these awards internationally, mm. I mean, here on the shelf behind me, I've got a, a letter we got from Parliament uh, congratulating us for an award we won, which is very special to me. Um, and to all of a sudden have to say publicly, hey, you know, <laughs> so long and thanks for all the fish, uh, was, was, was very, very dark. And I think that the, the part that really stayed with me personally was that I completely lost my ability to make decisions. Until right. uh, late on in paper right, I'd always been a very decisive, confidently decisive person. And mm. for a good two years after Paperite folded, so 2015 and 16, I suddenly wasn't sure about anything. Absolutely everything just seemed um, an impenetrable puzzle. What I would do with myself, yeah. how I should run my, run my business, uh, smallest decisions to the biggest ones were, were just impossible to make. Um, that was really, really tough. So whenever I see anyone else having to close or even downsize a business, um, I can feel, can feel for them. It's, uh, it's, it's a really tough, tough, yeah. tough place to be in. Yeah. And I guess I got really lucky in that I have a very supportive uh, family. My wife and my son are, are an absolute joy. Uh, so I mustn't underestimate how much, how important they were to to giving me a really like something something to enjoy while I figured out the rest. That feeling of being stuck and, and kind of being unable to make decisions is is certainly that that something that I can relate to. And I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to as well. Um I think in the very first episode of, of this podcast I'd spoken about this feeling of being on a path and the only way to move on this path through you know is through the door that's in front of you or through the door that's behind you and it's kind of 
and I was supposed to move off of that. And at some point, you know, you kind of get to the situation where you don't actually want to move forward. You don't want to move back either. And you can't move in either direction because you kind of are really stuck in this space. So, so for me, that that's something certainly that, that I, I can relate to in a lot of ways. And, and I mean, I can almost bet with absolute certainty that at some point in someone's life, that's something that they might feel. But I think more so, you know, when you take the risk of starting something like a business for yourself and, and it doesn't work. And I think there's also, there's, there's a lot in your story about how you've built yourself up again um, and, and learned to start over. And I know you mentioned the support that you got from your family, but how, how did you, was there anything that you did in particular? How did you get out of that, that sort of paralysis? Um, I think on, on a post that you wrote, which I'll include a link in the description, um, you called it the waiting space, which I really, I, I actually loved mm. um, that description of it. How did you get out of that waiting space? Yeah, that waiting space, uh, the wait, uh, particularly was referring to the waiting place as described in uh, Dr. Soyce's book. Oh, Sorry, the, the, yeah, the waiting the, place. The waiting yeah. place, yeah. It's yeah. a wonderful book called The Places You'll Go. Oh, The Places You'll Go. It's really, really fantastic. And he describes the space that everyone gets to in, in their life where all of a sudden mm -hmm. you're just waiting. Anyway, so yeah, um, how did we get out of the waiting place? I think that uh, not consciously, because at the time, as I said, I really didn't know what to do. It was a complete lack of confidence or ability to decide on anything. But I, the things that, that happened that led to me finding my way out were largely around making new things, staying creative in some way. Um, so, I mean, perhaps in a way, bookmaking was, was something that I'd always enjoyed as a comfortable safe space and so i went back to bookmaking designing books and so on and that in itself is a creative mm. act mm. and every little bit of creativity uh was as i like to say when you're creative you are investing in your in yourself in the sense that when you create something you kind of prove to yourself in the world that you are more than the than this person just standing here you can actually create and add right. to the world you, you the act of creation is is literally to to put more in the world than than was there before uh and that reminds you that you are that you're worth something you know um uh mm -hmm. and worth caring about and that was important and uh i think that that plus the support of others but particularly just staying creative was really really important so for me that was uh creating books and uh and just trying to build new tiny things lots of little tiny creative projects i started writing a little software application i was i was not much of a programmer at all i knew almost nothing but knew just enough to be able to make you know a computer do something and so I ended up writing some software that is now the foundation of of my business today um, but it was for me. It was just a, a way to be on my own in a quiet room with my computer and not care about anyone else or anything else or any of the other crazy publicity stuff we had had to care about for five years and just just make stuff on my own. So that was really really important to me. Yeah. Uh, and then also we um, we started making children's books and uh, that led to the whole right. whole book dash thing. That's a whole other story. Maybe we'll get to that just yeah. now. Yeah, we'll get to that indeed. Um, and I mean, isn't it amazing how that entire experience kind of, you know, led you back to Electric Bookworks, as you say, you kind of um, found your way there through through that program mm. that you're building. Um, and I realize 
there's so much in your story that we've discussed so far that I actually haven't even asked you to explain exactly what Electric Bookworks uh, does. <laughs> yeah, so we, I and some friends started Electric Bookworks back in 2006 with the aim of helping publishing companies use technology to make books more effectively and efficiently. I think that uh, at first unconsciously, but it became more and more conscious over the years, one of the biggest problems in publishing is an enormous amount of waste in the ways that books are made and that the result of that waste or a lot of that waste is the problems we see with the prices of books and the lack of access to books. Uh, Books take a very long time to make uh, because of these incredibly inefficient systems Um, and as a result during all of that time that things are taking uh, you're paying people and you're paying systems and paying Mm -hmm. warehouses and everything that all leads to more expensive books. Obviously, that is a hugely broad sweeping generalization. There are million specifics to get into there, but the bottom line is that it's a wasteful um, process where technology has a lot to offer. I don't think at all that technology is always the solution to everything. And in fact, when I say technology, I think I mean not just computers and what they can do and what machines can do, but just better processes, just a better workflow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who does what when? And make an enormous difference. Anyway, so Electric Bookworks set out in 2006 to bring that expertise to publishing. We were essentially a team of programmers, writers, editors, and publishers. And as it happened, we really struggled to find clients. Uh, and because we were trying to solve a problem that most people didn't feel they had, which is fair enough. I still think that traditional publishing, with all its wastefulness, is a beautiful gem of a wonderful business. It's lovely people doing amazing work in a very um, precious little space, uh, and maybe it should just be left to do its thing. Anyway, but Electric Bookworks wanted to do that. We couldn't, so we just started doing our own experiments, just trying to create projects, Mm. just making up stuff. And that's where Paperite came out of, actually. Paperite was one of those many experiments. And then after Paperite closed and I had to figure out how to make a living, I was back to Electric Bookworks, and we picked up where we left off and kept running experiments. Uh, and some of those experiments mm-hmm. grew uh, into wonderful things. And, and I mean, in a, in a way, I guess that that experience was kind of foundational, I, I would assume, in, in a lot of the, the progress and the work that you're doing today. And I think, you know, there's probably a real value in going through something like that firsthand, experiencing it, working through mm-hmm. it. Um, and you really, you can actually only do that by, by trying and, and, you know, by, by actually getting up and, and giving it a go. Um, but yeah, in, in anyways, mm-hmm. so on to Bookdash, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's incredible and, and exciting work that you're doing with, with Bookdash. And I guess from my understanding that the mission with Bookdash is to change the face of access to children's books globally and in South Africa. And the goal is to increase book ownership for, for young kids. Mm-hmm. And so in doing that, um, increase their the availability and and uh, proximity i guess to, to education um like i was mentioning right at the start yeah would you mind just telling us a little bit about your your work with with bookdash sure yeah bookdash has been the biggest privilege and the most fun of my whole career uh so bookdash is a non-profit and our vision is that every child should own 100 books by the age of five and there's a lot to unpack there, so <laughs> where to even start. I think that the, the place to start is how do you get books to children for free? 
that's essentially was the was the challenge, right? And not just any old books. We don't want people's hand me downs. We don't want secondhand books from England. You know, <laughs> that's just totally inappropriate yeah. for South African kids. We need new books. We need books where children's rec- children recognize themselves. So books of black characters, uh, uh, especially as particular big missing gap in the catalogs that are available yeah. to us, uh, as well as many other um, uh, people in the characters themselves. And then they need to be beautiful and they need to be, it needs to be possible to print them cheaply and distribute them widely. When Paperite was coming apart, I was kind of feeling a little bit angry with the publishing industry. It was my personal anger. <laughs> I've got over it since. But a part of me wanted to say, hell, you know, what I'm trying to do here is build up like an industry. And one of the things that occurred to me was that I started in publishing in really in the mid 90s because I was you know, in high school, university as a freelancer. But even when I got into publishing as my full time job, it was the late 90s. And it was still that time of euphor- euphoric kind of rainbow nation excitement in South sure. Africa. And yet the publishing industry, and I can only say this with hindsight, we really didn't do anything dramatic to increase access mm-hmm. to books at all. We just kept doing what we'd always been doing. And I think if, if imagine if in the mid-90s, the publishing industry had got together and said, you know what, let's print and give away 100 million small children's books to children around, around South Africa. Uh, it'll cost us this much money, um, and what we will have in twenty years' time is right. millions of young people who are now have grown up with books. Mm. But no one, none of us, including myself, had the vision to even think of that at the time. So then it's two thousand and fifteen, twenty years later, and you know, twenty year anniversary of democracy, and I suddenly realized, wow, twenty years went fast. Can you imagine if we had done that 20 years ago, now would be the time when all those children would be in their early 20s and they'd be buying books and we missed our chance. What the hell? So I I was disappointed and I was also at the same time thought, you know what? 20 years is going to come fast, the next 20 years. So let's start giving books away now. But how are we going to do it when this, these publishing people I'm talking to are you know, holding on to their books? And, and to be honest, I, I sound like I'm being mean about them, but they're, they're all good people. But the fact is their businesses don't allow it, right? Their business models do not allow them sure. to give away their books for free. And so we were going to have to make them ourselves. And so mm-hmm. I and uh, my wife, Michelle, and my colleague, Taryn, we just started calling up our friends who were illustrators and designers and got them around. And we started making children's books together kind of on the weekend. And then we would put them online for free and we'd find funders to print them and we'd give the books away. And our first ever giveaway, we gave 750 books away at a, the Jira Community Center wow. in Mitchell's Plain. And it was such a feeling of achievement for us to give away 750 books. Sure. It was really exciting. And, uh, but that grew into an organization, right? So now that became BookDash. Today, BookDash has given away over one and a half million free books. Uh, to children around South Africa in collaboration with amazing funders and partners who all come to the party with money and with ways to get books to children en masse. We've had, it must be over 500 different creative professionals, illustrators, designers, 
writers, editors, mm-hmm. all collaborate on our books to create these books. And then every book goes online on the BookDash website for free. Anyone can download it. And I don't just mean download it to read it. You can download it and print it out and translate it. You can sell your own copies. You can use the pictures. You can create videos out of it, anything you like. And the exponential yeah. impact of the books we've created around the world has just been the most rewarding thing of my whole bookmaking career. We get letters from all over the world, every corner of the world, of people who are reusing our books with children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, just seeing, seeing children around South Africa just holding these books in their hands is just such a, such a joy. Yeah. So it's been really fun. Yeah. And while it's still the beginning of the journey towards our vision of 100 books for every child, uh, we can actually start seeing now that this thing might actually be possible, you know? I mean, if, if, yeah. if a small organization like ours, I mean, we have only three staff members and four board members who are volunteers. So it's only three paid staff. And yet just those three, those, that team of three has given away one and a half million books. Uh, it's really possible to scale this thing big time yeah. and, uh, and to have other people build the same model. So oh, I get totally carried away. You better stop me. This is just too, it's too exciting. No, th- this, <laughs> this is amazing. And, and just remind me again, when did, when did you start BookDash? I th- which, which year was that? Uh, I think 2015, I think was our first, um, our first BookDash event, I think. Might have been 2014. 2035. 20, 2035. That, that's the year that uh, I'm going to make a note in my diary and, and we'll check. You make out. a note. I want to do a survey in 2035 and see how many children in South Africa remember having a book dash book as a child. Yeah. Uh, that'll be special. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what? I, it, it, it's such a fascinating thing. And I, it, it was a humbling feeling for me actually th- this week uh, when I actually sit down and sat down and, and thought about it as I was uh, getting ready to, to chat to you, it, it had never occurred to me that, well, well, firstly, let, let me say this, um, I'm, even though I'm 28, I'm still very much old school in the fact that I, I love having a physical book in my hand. Mm. Um, that feeling of opening the book up and the smell of the new paper and just that excitement of like, you know, you, you really have something in your hands that you can get into. It, it never occurred to me, and this is probably because of my relative privilege, it, it never occurred to me that there will be children in our society that will never have that feeling growing up. Um, and as I said, it was when I really sat down and thought about it and what impact that's had on my life and my approach to reading and what it, you know, impact reading and the ability to read has had an impact on my education. So... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are many people that will be listening to this that might actually have the same feeling. And, mm. and it was, as I say, very humbling to kind of, to, to realize. Um, and, and all of that to say, I, I really think it's incredible, um, the, the work that you're doing with, with BookDash. And, and honestly, I think for me, just coming full circle to our discussion, what's so fascinating is that there's actually, and I'm sure you may know this, there's a common thread kind of in, in almost all of the startups and, and projects that you've done um which really is about bringing books and bringing education closer to people making it more accessible um i don't want to use the word democratizing but but kind of breaking down those barriers between people and and books mm. why is why is that such an important mission for you why why this yeah you know if if i'd known that uh i don't know if Maybe that would have changed the way I think about things. It's, it's just that in my bones, you know, that I get so much joy and reward 
from books, not just reading them. I mean, actually, that's a small part of the experience of books. It's a very important part, mm. obviously, reading them. You know, that's kind of apparently the point. <laughs> but there's some other things as well that have been super special about books. We know at BookDash, for instance, uh, in the research we've done into um, that and the research we've read uh, by others into children's experience of books, they are an incredible way for children and caregivers to bond. Uh, right. Just a very... Uh, just being around books, even if you don't read them, it makes you aware that there are things you don't know and things you can explore, um, and that is important. Um, there's so many reasons books are just uh, a marvelous and special part of our humanity that, uh, that it just seems a no-brainer. There should be more of them, right? It's always struck me as <laughs> odd, perhaps because I was lucky enough to go and grow up in a house where there were more books in, that could, than I could ever read, that this yeah. notion that books are um, so expensive, that they're so precious, that we have to treat every single book with the most utmost kind of uh, care, like, as if it was a kind of museum artifact, is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Because there are no real like, laws of physics that say you can't have 5,000 books in your home that books can't be 40 or 50 rand a piece. You know, I traveled to India a few years ago yeah. and I could not believe how cheap books were in India. And I'm like, this is not a wealthy country. I, I was there, that was 10 years ago. It's not a wealthy right. country and yet books are a quarter of the price that they are here. The same books. It all comes mm. down to how we think about books. Do we have a mindset of abundance or do we have a mindset of scarcity? And we have to have a mindset of abundance around books. That's the problem that I think is a really interesting one to solve. It's something that BookDash is really focuses on in a lot of our decision making. We think, how do we make people, when they think of books, think in the thousands, not in the ones or tens, uh, or in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and the same thing goes for uh, our work at Electric Bookworks now, where we mm -hmm. produce digital books as well, books that are websites and books that are eBooks and books that are apps. Uh, how do we think of these things in the hundreds of thousands and um, yeah because the impact we could have is just extraordinary as i'd say 2035 look out for it um <laughs> so so many <laughs> many people i guess listening to this podcast will be perhaps founders themselves or business owners or probably people looking to start you know the passion project and, and turn it into a full-time business or or work it here Throughout your journey, what's been the biggest takeaway for you so far? If, if you could sit down with someone that was looking to, to start their passion project, looking to you know, go full-time into it, what's the kind of big takeaway for you that you would impart to them? Mm. You know, I, I always say there's no such thing as advice. There's just other people's stories. So <laughs> I'm not going to presume to be able to give advice. But maybe something of my story will resonate for some people. I think that, try as I might, I have never been able to think of the thing I wish I had known at the beginning, because the list is way too long, right? There are just so many things that I wish I had known when I started building a business. And actually, the most important thing for me then has been to enjoy learning whether you're learning the hard way or the easy way, enjoy the learning because that's what you're doing, right? 
If you're not enjoying the constant learning, if that's a drag, then don't kill yourself over the starting a business thing. Never feel bad about yourself if you realize you're not the kind of person who wants to start a business because as I said right at the beginning, entrepreneurs get way too much credit for being risk-taking pioneers. <laughs> um, it is an incredibly hard thing to do. It's an incredibly valuable thing to do. But it's also hard and valuable to, uh, to live your life in any way where you are a, uh, a good, kind person. So let me make that very clear. I don't think entrepreneurs are the savior of the world. But if you're going to be one, you better enjoy the learning because you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn it fast and it's never going to stop. Uh, and so enjoy it, right? That's, that's the thing that, um, that gives me the most joy is how much I learn every single day. Even having done this for 20 years, I still feel like I'm only beginning to figure out how to do this thing, this, this running a business uh, and making good things thing. What's next? What's in the future for, for Arthur? Well, <laughs> one of those many things about businesses <laughs> is that uh, at some point you have to focus. There's a time for, for trying a million different things and seeing what works and there's a time for focusing. And uh, for me, I've loved all these different projects I've started, but really uh, what I'm working on right now is narrowing my focus to a laser focus on Electric Bookworks and what we're best at. At Electric Bookworks, we make books for organizations around the world who need to act like publishers, but don't want to be publishers. Right. Usually they're trying to put some complex idea in the world. And we work with them to figure out how to do that in book and, and web form. And we've got some special skills in our really cool team. Um, and I need to get super laser focused on making making the most of that and the tech we're building. So um, I think that there's a new kind of publishing growing, which is as much as traditional publishers do wonderful work, I think increasingly they're only a part of a much bigger publishing industry which is organizations that are publishing for strategic reasons, trying to put complex ideas in the world and being thought leaders. Uh, and we've got a lot to offer Electric Bookworks to help those organizations get their ideas in the world. So yeah, it's got to, it's got to be that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that'll be a, a happy business home for me for a long time. And that's it, App, on this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to right now. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share with others and leave a rating and review. This has been the Breaking Out Podcast and I've been your host, Chadid Lazar. Until next time. I guess if anyone listening wants to get involved in, in BookDash, um, whether it's participating in a BookDash or, or just supporting the, the organization, how do they reach out? Where do they find out more? BookDash.org is the website. Uh, so on the BookDash.org page, uh, there is a whole lot of information about different ways to get involved. If you are a creative person who does illustration, writing, or design uh either for a living or like seriously, um, like you're a serious uh, experienced illustrated writer designer, then maybe you can be at a book dash one day, you know, one of our book dash events for that sign up on our newsletter so that you hear about the next one in your city. Uh, increasingly, we're also doing them virtually. So we involve people all around the world. So it almost doesn't matter where you are these days. So that's really um, a very exciting way to be involved. Also, if you're involved in any kind of organization that works with children, 
Um, we work with organizations to get those children books. And so you need to get on our list and uh, make sure we know about you so that hopefully we can get some more books to children. Lots of ways, but start at bookdash.org. And then, of course, there's, there's your podcast, How Books Are Made. If you want to listen to Arthur speak to bookmaking leaders and just learn a little bit more about how books are made, go ahead and check that out. I'll include a, a link in the show notes. 